Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Opportunity Starts at Home podcast, where we explore the deep connection between housing and opportunity across the nation with experts from various sectors, from health to education, to racial equity, to climate, and much more. My name is Chantel Wilkinson. I am the campaign manager of the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign. The campaign is about bringing voices into housing advocacy that are not typical housing advocates and using these new partners to advance federal affordable housing policy. This campaign has come together at a critical moment with housing advocates recognizing the crisis has reached enormous heights and advocates and leaders in other sectors recognizing that fixing the housing crisis is instrumental to their own goals and priorities. Housing has an impact on our health. Housing has an impact on our education. Housing has an impact on our access to nutritious foods. Housing has played a major role in structural racism and discrimination, and we can go on and on. Our podcast episodes aim to deepen our understanding of housing and its spillover impacts, explore the substantial research out there, and we are bringing in the experts to chat about it. So thank you for joining us today, and let's get into this episode. Welcome to the Opportunity Starts at Home podcast, where we talk about opportunity in America today and how housing fundamentally shapes that opportunity. In this episode, we're continuing our series on fair housing in the United States. So far, we've discussed the history of the Fair Housing Act, recent trends in housing discrimination, and the interpersonal processes that underlie these trends. Today, we're going to focus on federal policy related to fair housing, and we're thrilled to be joined by a guest with significant expertise in this area. Our guest today is Dr. Justin Steele, an associate professor of law and urban planning at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Justin's research analyzes how power and inequality are created and contested through control over access to particular places. Justin is the co-editor of three books, including Furthering Fair Housing, Prospects for Racial Justice in America's Neighborhoods, and his research has been cited in federal court opinions and briefs to the Supreme Court. He received a BA in, from Harvard College in African-American Studies, a master's from the London School of Economics and City Design and Social Science, a JD from Columbia Law School, and a doctorate in urban planning from the Columbia Graduate School of Arts and Sciences. So we are thrilled to have him. Welcome, Justin. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Of course. All right. So uh, just to get started, I think you have this really interesting interdisciplinary background as both a lawyer and an urban planner. So I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit about your background, both personal and professional and particularly what led to your interest in fair housing? Sure. I think a lot of my interest in fair housing, the roots of it probably started growing up in New York City uh, when I was a child and just seeing the importance of neighborhoods and urban policy and housing stability. And also when I was in college, I studied in South Africa in 1998, shortly after the end of apartheid. And spending time in South Africa and realizing how much the physical landscape of South Africa, in addition to its legal landscape and the teaching of history, but how much the physical landscape itself had been designed to keep people separate and unequal and, and how that control over urban space and the, the territory of the country was a driver of racial inequality made me particularly interested in these issues of planning, control over space and access to particular neighborhoods and access to housing. Um, and coming back home to the United States uh, after that, it was very clear, of course, how many of those exact same processes had happened here in the United States, that there had also been conscious and explicit 
design of the landscape to keep people separate and, and unequal. And so that's been a big focus of my, of my research. I um, initially worked mostly with community-based organizations, and that was kind of where I saw my life's work, I guess, but then realized that I, I had the opportunity to, I could have the opportunity to study further and research and teach, and I, I really love teaching um, and working with students and conducting research. And so I was excited to try and do some research in this area and thought that since so much of urban planning and access to housing is shaped by law, by property law, landlord-tenant law, that it would be helpful to understand both the empirical social science side of uh, these issues and also the legal dimension. So I did both a JD and a, and a PhD. So that's a little bit about how I ended up, ended up here with this interdisciplinary background. Thank you for, for sharing that. And I think uh, listeners of the podcast know that Opportunity Starts at Home really takes an interdisciplinary view of housing. And so I think what comes through in your research is that your interdisciplinary approach, you know, considering that you were a practitioner and you have a legal background and an academic background, I think it's a real asset in understanding the nuance involved in, in so many of these policy discussions. So our discussion today is going to focus on an article that you published in 2018 with Nicholas Kelly that's um, titled The Fairest of Them All analyzing affirmatively fair, furthering fair housing compliance. Um, but before we jump into that article and the specific methodology and your findings, I'm hoping to talk a little bit about the historical context. So this, this uh, affirmatively furthering fair housing policies really dates back to uh, the Fair Housing Act first passed in, in 1968. So can you tell us a little about that legislation and what its goals were? Sure, and, and really to understand the Fair Housing Act, we have to go further back into history. Um, and we could go all the way back to um, colonization, but I, I'm gonna start at the end of, of reconstruction just so that we can keep it relatively succinct. And so following the end of reconstruction, especially in the later part of the 19th century, white collective violence against black residents of integrated neighborhoods forced African-American neighbors from their homes and neighborhoods, which actually increased the levels of segregation in the late 1800s and the early 1900s compared to what they had been before. And I've written some also about municipal segregation ordinances and, and Baltimore passed the first one of these in 1910. And other cities across the South also passed laws requiring the use of separate blocks for residences, places of abode and places of assembly by race. And the NAACP successfully challenged these racial zoning provisions uh, pursuant to the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause in a number of cases that culminated in the Supreme Court case Buchanan v. Worley in 1917. And after these municipal zoning ordinances were struck down, white strategies to solidify separate and unequal living patterns increasingly focused on the diffusion of private racially restrictive covenants in white communities. And also subsequently through the well-known policies of, of redlining encouraged by the Federal Housing Administration and operationalized by private lenders and banks in particular. And so all of these were challenged by civil rights organizations like the NAACP, and they developed both political and legal campaigns to challenge both public policies and private practices that excluded African-American home seekers from the homes of their choice, whether those were race, municipal segregation ordinances, racially restrictive covenants, or redlining. Um, and so we talked about Buchanan v. Worley a minute ago, and then another well-known case, Shelley versus Kramer in 1948, 
the Supreme Court said that courts could not enforce racially restrictive covenants, even though they were private covenants. But even after Shelley versus Kramer, racial discrimination in housing by lenders, by brokers, by landlords, and other private actors continued to be both legally permissible and pervasive. And the real estate development and the financing practices that facilitated suburbanization after World War II essentially blocked Black households from the opportunity to move to these new suburban developments and continued to, continue to limit Black households' ability to accumulate home equity. And these issues of housing discrimination actually became a focus of Martin Luther King's uh, work with the Southern Christian Leadership Conference in 1966 when he announced a collaboration with the Coordinating Council of Community Organizations uh, on the Chicago Freedom Movement. And he explicitly, King explicitly compared residential segregation to colonization. And he sought to bring about the unconditional surrender. This is a quote, quote, to bring about the unconditional surrender of forces dedicated to the creation and maintenance of slums and ultimately make slums a moral and financial liability upon the whole community, end quote. And, and King noted the parallels between spatial control through plantations under slavery and spatial control through housing discrimination and metropolitan segregation. He said, quote, the plantation and the ghetto were created by those who had power, both to confine those who had no power and to perpetuate their powerlessness. The problem of transforming the ghetto, therefore, is a problem of power, confrontation of the forces of power demanding change and the forces of power dedicated to preserving the status quo, end quote. And so this movement that he was involved in in Chicago was called the Open Housing Movement, and they led marches through the summer of 1966 into all white neighborhoods on Chicago's Southwest and Northwest sides to expose white opposition to residential integration. And in King's words, to draw this hate into the open. The marchers were consistently jeered, taunted and met with violence from hostile white residents. And King pointed out that, quote, many whites who oppose open housing would deny they are racist, end quote, which I think is a continuing uh, dimension of, of housing discrimination and fair housing today that often people have discriminatory preferences, but don't see themselves as, as being racist. So prompted by these struggles uh, by civil rights organizations, uh, by Martin Luther King, by the NAACP, by others, President Johnson and Senator Mondale pushed for a federal fair housing bill in 1966 and 1967. And while there had been some success in some state fair housing bills, there was not success at the federal level. And Senator Mondale recalled Quote, a lot of civil rights was about making the South behave and taking the teeth from George Wallace, end quote. But the proposed fair housing law that he was advancing, quote, came right to the neighborhoods across the country. This was civil rights getting personal, end quote. And, and it is notable that the Fair Housing Act came much, you know, several years after the um, Civil Rights Act of 1964, obviously, four years after that, and the Voting Rights Act of 1965, because as Mondale suggested, for a lot of people, this felt, I think, too close to home. And so a lot of white uh, voters and their elected representatives were very uncomfortable with the idea of the Fair Housing Act. And it, it really was not passed until after Martin Luther King was, was assassinated. And that was the impetus for the uh, ultimate passage of the Fair Housing Act in April of 1968. And in that passage, Congress recognized that discriminatory housing practices hurt not only individuals who are denied access, but the whole community of, of which they're a part. And so Mondale emphasized that citywide problems were, quote, directly traceable to the existing patterns of racially segregated housing, end quote. 
um, and, and Mondale and um, Senator Edward Brooke and, and other sponsors of Fair Housing have pointed out that cities were overburdened and underfinanced specifically as a result of discrimination in housing, and that the Fair Housing Act was necessary to address the declining tax base, poor sanitation, loss of jobs, inadequate educational opportunities that central cities faced. So I think that that's an important piece of background context to understand the Fair Housing Act, that it was intended to address housing discrimination directly, but also the complex web of challenges that discrimination in housing had entrenched in segregated metropolitan areas. And I'll just add one more quote from Senator Edward Brooke, who emphasized that the quote, tax base on which adequate public services and especially adequate public education subsists has fled the city. Um, and so the goal, he said, must be to move toward recreating adequate services in the city by rooting out systemic, discrimi systemic discrimination. And a lot of these same challenges we still face today in, in metropolitan fragmentation and, and very fragmented regional tax bases that, that drive unequal access to place-based opportunities given how we structure um, access to school systems, to public open space and other, other resources. Those are just a few examples. And so I would see the Fair Housing Act as setting out kind of two objectives. One was to prohibit discrimination on the basis of race, color, religion, and sex, and, and subsequently after the Fair Housing Amendments Act of 1988, disability or handicap and familial status and national origin. And then second, the Fair Housing Act required that, quote, all executive departments and agencies shall administer their programs and activities relating to housing and urban development including any federal agency having regulatory or supervisory authority over financial institutions in a manner affirmatively to further the purposes of this subchapter, end quote. And so that is the provision of the Fair Housing Act that um, requires HUD to ensure that all executive departments and, and all entities, there's another passage that, that has similar language, um, that all entities that HUD funds and supervises take uh, meaningful steps affirmative steps to further fair housing. And so that's the part of the Fair Housing Act that creates the need for this affirmatively furthering fair housing rule. Great, that's really helpful. I mean, so we, and we've done a couple of uh, interviews on this. And I think when we, you think about those dual goals, the preventing discrimination and then affirmatively furthering fair housing. In terms of the discrimination, I think the general consensus from the literature is that housing discrimination has declined, but, but uh, especially in maybe more subtle forms definitely still exists. But for your article and in this discussion, I want to focus on the, the second uh, goal, which is this affirmatively furthering fair housing. So can you tell us a little bit about, so that it's, it's written into the law, and then can you tell us a little bit about how that law is implemented between passage in 1968 and then up through kind of until the Obama administration? What does, what does that look like? Uh, how is it implemented and how successfully is it implemented? Yes, absolutely. So it has a a complicated history, but the, the short version is that there wasn't truly much implementation until the Obama administration. So following the election of Richard Nixon in 1968, George Romney became the HUD secretary. Um, and so he took steps to fulfill the act's promise to affirmatively furthering fair housing. And Romney sought to deny HUD funding to wealthy municipalities that used a variety of exclusionary practices, such as overly restrictive land use regulations or discriminatory provision of basic urban infrastructure. Romney used a very charged phrase to describe what he was trying to do. He said he was trying to break up the, quote, high income white noose, end quote, around black communities. 
Nixon, uh, however, did not uh, share Romney's enthusiasm for actually trying to advance fair housing. And he instead, Nixon sought to undermine Romney's open communities efforts, um, basically saying that the country wasn't ready for this, this type of action and that, and that Nixon didn't support it. And so Nixon, Nixon's opposition ultimately contributed to Romney's resignation. And, and what that really meant was that these early efforts to actually realize the affirmatively furthering fair housing provision were essentially blocked from the top of the executive branch by President Nixon. Um, and Nixon then instead advanced his concept of what he called the new federalism through the Housing and Community Development Act of 1974, which created consolidated multiple federal funding streams into the Community Development Block Grant Program, which we still have today. Um, and, and you know that Community Development Block Grant Program does a lot of great things, but it was an effort, I, I think it's fair to say, to basically allow states to have a lot of freedom to do what they want. And, and Nixon conspicuously didn't include any reference to the Fair Housing Act. And so there wasn't much of a focus on that. Finally, in 1983, Congress amended the Community Development Block Grant Program to specify that HUD should only award grants if grantees demonstrated that they would affirmatively furthering fair housing. And so HUD issued regulations in 1988 and again in 1995, stating that community development block grant recipients would be considered in compliance with their Fair Housing Act obligation to further fair housing if they would conduct an analysis to identify impediments to fair housing choice within the jurisdiction, take appropriate actions to overcome the effects of any impediments identified through that analysis, and maintain records reflecting the analysis and the actions. In reality, though, to document those, HUD grantees created a document called an analysis of impediments, basically an analysis of impediments to fair housing, which was often referred to as an AI. Uh, but in reality, HUD rarely, if ever, reviewed these analyses of impediments, these AIs, and there were basically no consequences for incomplete, inadequate, or, or completely non-existent filings. So in short, from 1968, essentially to 2015, there was really no meaningful enforcement of the affirmatively furthering fair housing provision. And this was actually documented in a HUD study in 2009, which found that only a minority of jurisdictions actually have an AI that's readily available to the public and that the ones that they had received, uh, the majority, of, almost not the majority, but almost half of them were poor quality um, and didn't contain key aspects that HUD had recommended in its fair housing planning guide and were generally completed in a cursory fashion. And then the Government Accountability Office also did a study of AIs in 2010 and found that more than a third of them were out of date they had few measurable objectives or timeframes. They generally weren't signed by the grantees' highest ranking local officials, uh, which made it difficult to hold anyone accountable. And so all of this led uh, to a, a subsequent bipartisan National Commission on Fair Housing and Equal Opportunity, co-chaired by former head secretaries, Jack Kemp and Henry Cisneros, finding that the current federal system for ensuring fair housing compliance by state and local recipients of housing assistance has failed, which, I think was a very accurate and succinct statement of the of the context. They found that HUD requires no evidence that anything is actually being done as a condition of funding, and it does not take adverse action if jurisdictions are directly involved in discriminatory actions or fail to affirmatively further fair housing. So again, the short answer is from 1968 to 2015, there was essentially no enforcement of these affirmatively furthering fair housing provisions. Right. So you have these uh, kind of big 
very damning reports, the, the HUD report and the GAO report that you mentioned, that come out right around the time that Obama, the Obama administration is, is taking office. And so this really becomes a priority under HUD secretaries, uh, Sean Donovan and Julian Castro. Uh, and so what comes out of this is what's termed the affirmatively furthering fair housing rule, which is rolled out in 2015. So can you tell us a little bit about that policy? What did it consist of uh, and how is it a departure from the past? Yes. So one of the basic things that it did really was to define what affirmatively furthering fair housing should entail. And so HUD defined affirmatively furthering fair housing as taking meaningful actions that taken together address significant disparities in housing needs and in access to opportunity, replacing segregated living patterns with truly integrated and balanced living patterns, transforming racially and ethnically concentrated areas of poverty into areas of opportunity, and fostering and maintaining compliance with civil rights and fair housing laws. And so this definition that HUD came up with notably highlights that advancing racial and economic integration and investing in the transformation of economically isolated areas into ones rich with opportunity are central aspects of furthering fair housing. I think what the rule was really intended to do was to address this dramatic disparities in access to place-based resources that characterize metropolitan areas across the United States. And to do that by ensuring that there's meaningful housing choice for people, that their, their housing needs are being met and that they have access to neighborhoods that they might choose to find the opportunities that they prioritize. And also to support investments in neighborhoods that have historically been disinvested in and ensuring that those neighborhoods are part of concerted community revitalization plans that can bring increased opportunities to neighborhoods that have experienced disinvestment. And so what this meant in practice is that it takes an interesting approach because one of the first kind of provisions of the AFFA tool, one of the basic requirements is actually requiring HUD to provide grant recipients with uniform data about residential segregation and disparities in access to place-based resources and opportunities. And I think that's a really important first step of saying, why don't we start out this effort by providing you with some data so you can understand the context in your uh, municipality or your state and how that compares to the region, the metropolitan region, so you can better identify what some of the obstacles to fair housing might be and then what types of goals it would be reasonable to set to advance fair housing. And so then it uh, requires all public entities that receive HUD funding to engage with residents to create local strategies to address disparities by race, national origin, family status, disability, and other protected characteristics in access to quality schools, proximity to employment, exposure to environmental hazards. And then it requires municipalities to submit plans to HUD called assessments of fair housing or AFHs. And by mandating local creation of specific measurable goals and actions to reduce segregation and increase access to opportunity, the assessments of fair housing link these planning and assessment efforts to the availability of future HUD funding through the consolidated plan process and community development block grant funding. And so these assessments of fair housing, which are often referred to as AFHs, how do they compare to the analysis of impediments? Is it right to consider them kind of like the evolution, the next step of those, uh, kind of a more, a version with more teeth? How should we think about that evolution? 
Yes. I mean, it's a very dramatic evolution because I think it's a, a long way from the old AIs to the new AFHs or assessments of fair housing. So the main steps in the assessments of fair housing um, is essentially answering a set of, of questions that HUD provided in this, what they called the AFFH assessment tool. Um, and so it was essentially a guide. The assessment tool is a guide to grantees to help them complete their fair housing plan, their assessment of fair housing. And so it has a few key elements. So one is community participation, um, gathering public input on fair housing issues, making the draft plans public, soliciting community feedback, and addressing these comments and concerns. It also uh, asks municipalities how they've addressed prior fair housing goals and how that progress or lack of progress had influenced the selection of the current goals. And then it asked municipalities to analyze the HUD provided data and additional local data that they might wanna add on segregation and integration along lines of race and ethnicity and national origin, English proficiency and disability, concentrated poverty, access to high performing schools, employment, transportation, low poverty neighborhoods, environmentally healthy neighborhoods and disproportionate housing needs. And then also data on access to opportunity for residents of publicly supported housing, whether public housing or housing choice vouchers and data on access to opportunity for individuals with disabilities and then an analysis of fair housing enforcement outreach capacity and resources. And then it asks grant recipients to identify what they see as the local fair housing challenges and to prioritize the factors that contribute to those challenges, particularly those that limit opportunities to live in a variety of neighborhoods and that drive disparities in access to opportunity. And then the final step is asking grant recipients to set goals designed to overcome these contributing factors, to clarify how each goal addresses that contributing factor, and to set out metrics, milestones, timeframes, and the responsible parties for achieving the goals. And then the idea is that the metrics, milestones, and strategies be included in subsequent consolidated plans and annual action plans and public housing authority plans. So it's encouraging a whole comprehensive analysis of fair housing issues, setting out concrete measurable goals, and then including those goals in the other community development work that, that states and localities and public housing authorities are doing. And I think one really valuable part of this research is that you not only you know, analyze the, the specifics of these plans, but you also zoom out a little bit and, and use the assessments of fair housing as kind of a, a broader implementation case study. So, Thinking about that, you describe these AFHs as a form of meta-regulation. So can you tell us what, what does that term mean and, and what are the implications of that type of policy? So a meta-regulation is really a regulation that seeks to encourage those who are subject to the regulation, um, here are municipalities or public housing authorities or states, to develop their own internal self-regulatory responses. And they're often relied upon in contexts where the entities subject to the regulation need flexibility to implement rules suitable to their particular context. And the AFFH rule is an example of this, and I think sensibly so, because it doesn't, I mean, it's a, it's a trade-off. You, you know, HUD could just set out some very specific things that it wanted municipalities to do, and that would be easy for HUD, and it would be easy for localities. But the United States is obviously a very heterogeneous place, and what works well in one city might not work well in, a, in another town, and what works well in one state might not be ideal for another state. And so it's trying to recognize 
this heterogeneity and, and also the importance of having public participation and public officials design something that seems like the right thing for their context. And so it seeks a reduction in disparities in access to opportunity, but it leaves open to the grant recipients the choice of strategies to achieve fair housing. So there's definitely pros and cons to this approach, but it, it's one that that is really very locally sensitive and isn't trying to mandate a particular approach from above, but encouraging localities, public housing authorities and states to come up with their own approaches that are that they see as being best suited for their context. And the article looks at kind of key characteristics that might influence implementation of of plans and meta regulations more broadly. So thinking outside of just, you know, a specific fair housing policy, you talk, you describe kind of key things that research suggests that would make implementation more effective. So can you tell us about the, the characteristics that you looked at and, and how they kind of map on to the AFH process? Sure. So, so drawing on research in other contexts about other types of uh, the plan success, plan implementation, uh, we identified a couple of dimensions that seemed like they would likely be salient here. One would be the grant recipient's normative commitment to the objectives of the regulation, and the second would be their capacity to implement it. So in other words, do the public officials in this locality, do they see this as a, as a worthwhile priority and a worthwhile investment of their time and effort to address disparities in access to place-based opportunity by disability, by race, by family status, by national origin, and to address concentrated poverty? And do the public officials in that context actually have the capacity to design and implement plans that can meaningfully address it? So they, each of those are likely to affect how successful the plan will be. And so in the AFFH context, we tried to come up with some measures that we thought might get at these. And so for commitment, we were interested in potentially local political ideology or, or partisanship, also potentially the strength of local fair housing groups. And we thought it might also be relevant the number and type of fair housing lawsuits in the region, that that could be illustrative of some dimensions of the prevalence of housing discrimination. Um, and then in terms of capacity, you know, population size and median household income, you know, can be somewhat illuminating of the size of the entity and the size of the tax base and what types of resources that could support within local government to advance these. Um, but we also looked uh, very specifically at the community development block grant funding that the place already gets, because that takes into account several measures of community need, including population size, the extent of poverty, housing overcrowding, age of housing and, and population growth in relation to other metropolitan areas. And then there's a specific HUD measure of um, the timeliness of recipients' use of community development block grant funds, which seems like another potential measure of, of local capacity. So, so those were some of the things that we tried to use to uh, translate these concepts into, into measures in, in this particular paper. All right, so let's drill down then a little bit more into your methodological approach uh, in this study in particular. So can you tell us a little bit about what your specific research questions were? And then what data did you look at? Because uh, I think that's a really important part of the study. And, and how did you analyze it? Sure. So we were interested first at just looking at the program level of comparing the AFHs to the prior AIs, the assessments of fair housing, 
to the analyses of impediments that existed before the 2015 AFFH rule. And what we were particularly interested in is whether the goals proposed in the assessments of fair housing actually contain more measurable objectives and new policy proposals. So that was really the first question, uh, comparing the AFHs to the AIs along the dimensions of measurable objectives with the goals and new policies with the goals. And then the second question was looking at municipal level characteristics, looking at whether some of these municipal level characteristics, including measures of motivation or normative commitment, as we just talked about, and of capacity, as we just discussed, are associated with a larger number of, of more robust fair housing goals, robustness being measured as above in terms of having a, a measurable objective and or having a new new policy. So those were our, our main two questions. And in terms of data, in this paper, we started out by identifying all of the assessments of fair housing that had been filed at the time we started the research, um, and then identifying the previous analysis of impediments from the same municipality. So we could compare the same municipality across these two different programs. And in the um, book that I subsequently co-edited, I have a chapter with uh, my colleagues, Nicholas Kelly, who I wrote this article with, and two other colleagues, Maya Wallachem and Reed Jordan, where we actually extended this research and collected all of the um, 49 assessments of fair housing that were reviewed by HUD before the uh, Trump administration suspended the AFFH rule. And so we, we have a, an even more complete uh, analysis in a book chapter in that book called The Promise Fulfilled. Great. So you actually go and look at the, the assessments of fair housing that are actually submitted by municipalities. So kind of looking at these concrete documents that have been submitted. And let's talk about the findings. So for the first question, what did you find about the impact of the uh, assessments of fair housing on the presence of measurable objectives and new policies? So when you compare them back to the analysis impediments, what did you see in those, in those two areas? And can you maybe provide an example that kind of demonstrates the finding? Sure. So of, of all the goals in the analyses of impediments, only 5% contained either a measurable objective or a new policy. And so there's a very dramatic contrast was in the um, assessments of fair housing that we looked at in this paper, roughly a third of them, a third of all the goals contained either a measurable objective or a new policy or both. So that's a very dramatic change. And I think on the one hand, it's disappointing in a sense that that more of the goals didn't have truly measurable objectives. But on the other hand, compared to the analysis of impediments program, it's a complete, it's a completely different, different world. It's a, you know, a 28 percentage point difference. And I think you really see that in the plans that there's a lot of maybe platitudes in the analyses of impediments, but not a lot of clear actionable proposals, whereas the assessments of fair housing have many more very clear goals where localities have said, you know, we will build 35 units of uh, housing affordable to households making less than 60% of the area median income in areas that have higher levels of access to opportunity. That was just uh, an example, but very, you know, in the next five years, but they're very, you know, there's a, a lot of goals that have very concrete commitments that the public could then come back and, and hold, hold the city accountable for. And so I think that overall, these findings suggest the municipalities in their assessments of fair housing are proposing more new policies with more measurable objectives 
that focus on the stated goals of the AFFH rule when compared to the prior AI. So it's, it's really a dramatic change. And so one example um, I could give you to illustrate this is El Paso County, Colorado. So, you know, an example of the goal from the El Paso, El Paso County, Colorado 2009 analysis of impediments was to empower people through educational materials to help them avoid becoming a victim of predatory and unfair lending practices by providing online information and training to increase knowledge of existing and potential homeownership and lending practices. So it, and there's no measurable objective here. It's basically saying we'll have some trainings at some point and put some information online that people could potentially find to avoid predatory lending. Very vague, hard to hold the county accountable for that and not clear that it's gonna have a, a tremendous impact without more detail. So there's no no metrics to measure progress in, in empowering people in this way. You know, they're not saying we're going to look at the number of subprime loans or the number of loans with uh, particular uh, loan provisions. We're not going to, there's no, there's no measurement there proposed at all to see if it's working. And so by comparison in their, in El Paso County, Colorado's 2016 assessment of fair housing, the county committed to assisting with the development of 100 publicly supported affordable units in areas of opportunity in the next five years. And so it's, you know, you there, we could want even more specificity, but it does include a very clear metric for the public to assess progress, the construction of 100 publicly subsidized affordable units in parts of the county with higher levels of access to opportunity. And so I think that's just one example of many of this contrast between very vague goals and the analyses of impediments and much more concrete and specific ones in the assessment of fair housing. Um, and there are folks now um, who are working on seeing to what extent were the goals in the assessments of fair housing actually met. Definitely, and I think it's a real strength of the paper. Uh, you really dive into a few case studies so you can really demonstrate the findings in concrete ways like you just did. So I'd encourage readers to, to check it out. So shifting from that question to the question about the relationship between municipal level characteristics and the content of these plans, what did you find there? So we developed this further from this article and then further in the book chapter where we had a larger sample because there we were able to include all of the municipalities that had submitted assessments of fair housing before the rule was suspended. And so one of the things that we found there was that actually more segregated areas, municipalities with larger measures of black-white dissimilarity had more measurable objectives and new policies in their assessments of fair housing compared to those with those areas with less black-white segregation. We also found that there was a positive association between more goals with measurable objectives and new policies than more populous municipalities and also areas with slightly higher levels of median household income. So but what this suggests is that we see more segregated municipalities creating assessments of fair housing with more quantifiable goals and more new policies. And that suggests to me that on some level, the assessment, the uh, affirmatively furthering fair housing rule and the assessment of fair housing is working, was working as intended before it was suspended by the Trump administration that um, grantees with higher levels of segregation were proposing more concrete steps to reduce segregation and make access to place-based resources more equitable compared to grantees with lower levels of residential segregation. So I think that that's a, a very promising finding. 
And so you've alluded to this a few times already, but so as you mentioned, the affirmatively furthering fair housing rule, which was first introduced in 2015, was subsequently rolled back under the Trump administration. And so the Biden administration's come in, they reinstated the rule kind of in a scaled back interim format, uh, at least to, to my last reading. Um, and they're, they're currently working on kind of new fair housing planning process. So I'm just curious, as you think about the implications of your research and you describe this, you know, what I think is a really substantive jump from the AIs to the AFHs where there is more, you know, measurable goals and clear objectives. What are the implications of, of these findings for those working on a new rule? There's a few things that stand out to me in terms of implications. So first, I think to be heartened that it seems as though the rule was making a substantial difference that, as you said, that the assessment of fair housing process was uh, resulting in much more meaningful analysis and meaningful measurable goals to advance fair housing than the prior analysis of impediments process. So I think it's one of probably infinite examples of where thoughtful regulations and careful public policy actually have an impact, a positive impact. So that would be my first takeaway. I think another, this doesn't come through quite as clearly in this article, but we wrote another article called Survival of the Fairest about the assessments of fair housing that were rejected initially by HUD. And I think that that's another piece of this that's really important for the crafting the new rule is that actually meaningful review by HUD was, was really important And so a combination of support from HUD and technical assistance from HUD, and then also meaningful review and rejection of of analyses of assessments of fair housing that don't meet the requirements of the rule, I think is is really important to encourage, to increase the motivation for grantees to comply. The two other pieces I'd add to that is that, you know, from this research, it, it seemed that public participation and work with local fair housing organizations and other community-based organizations, anecdotally from the conversations we had with folks, seemed to be associated with really with more creative and more robust assessments of fair housing. So I think support for those collaborations between grantees and, and local community-based organizations and fair housing organizations is really important. And the other thing that I, you know, heard anecdotally is that I think that the original assessment tool, many municipalities with lower levels of capacity found burdensome. You know, there's a lot of questions in there and I think the questions could be made in a more streamlined way. But I think it's important that it be done in a way that, that smaller localities with less capacity can actually go through this process and do this process themselves, ideally without outsourcing it to a consultant, because I think the conversations will be much more meaningful and the long-term impacts will be more meaningful if the tool is, is somewhat more streamlined and streamlined enough that small, small grantees can, can do it themselves. So those are a few thoughts about designing the, the new tool. Yeah, and I, you, you, know, you reference coming out of this that you've done further research on you know, a broader look at assessments of fair housing, and then also maybe looking at some of the feedback that HUD was able to provide. So I'm curious what other research, what future research, either that you're working on or that you, you know, would, would recommend other scholars take up about this type of, of process, whether it's on, you know, a new rule or um, maybe some of the underlying processes that would be relevant to, to constructing a new rule. So one of the, you know, this is a very um, 
is a more narrow uh, answer to your question, but I think it's important to do research to see to what extent, because this research that we did here was really looking at the plans themselves, because we were doing it right as those plans soon after those plans had been filed. I think now that you know roughly five years have passed since the first plans were filed, it would be important to go back and look and see to what extent did grantees follow through on the commitments they made in their assessments of fair housing. And I know various people are working on that. So I think that's an important first step. Another thing that's been on my mind is, is looking uh, specifically at, at the effects of these assessments of fair housing on local land use provisions that affect both access to opportunity and housing affordability. Because a lot of the plans talked extensively about housing affordability. And that's one of the areas that the assessment of fair housing discusses is um, housing needs and disparities in housing needs. And so I think land use, changes to land use, local land use policies is a very concrete goal that, that a number of municipalities mentioned. And so it'll be interesting to see how they have, which ones have followed through on those and, and what effect, effects those have had. All right. Well, I think that's a really nice place to wrap up. On behalf of our listeners, Justin, thank you so much for joining us. I'm so appreciative of your uh, thoughtful answers and your generosity in sharing your expertise with us. So thank you. Thank you, Sam, for, for having me. It's, it's been a pleasure. I really appreciate it.